Hello, everyone, and welcome to this latest episode of Freshfield's Asia Essential Antitrust podcast series. In this series, we speak with local experts across the region to bring you the latest competition law trends and updates. My name is Hazel Yin. I'm a partner and the co-head of the Freshfields Antitrust Practice in China. In this sixth episode, we will bring you up to speed on the latest competition policy developments and enforcement trends in Hong Kong. To discuss these topics, I'm very delighted to be joined by my colleagues from our Hong Kong office. Alastair Mordent, a partner and the co-head of Freshfields Antitrust Practice in Asia, as well as the firm's Foreign Investment Skills Group. Alastair has more than 20 years of regulator and private practice experience, advising clients on merger control, foreign investment review, and antitrust investigations. This includes four years as a senior official at the UK's Competition Authority, formerly known as the Office of Fair Trading, and he has been practicing in Hong Kong since 2016. Hi, Hazel. Thanks for having me on. Also with us today is Lohan Bugar, a senior associate in the Hong Kong antitrust team. Before joining the team in Asia, Lohan has spent over seven years in Brussels, and his expertise covers all areas of EU competition law with a particular focus on global merger control investigations requiring remedies. Hi, Hazel. Good to be there. Both Alastair and Lohan have extensive experience advising clients in Hong Kong and globally, helping them to navigate antitrust and the competition risks and the challenges. I hope that our sharing today will provide very practical takeaways to help you steer your business in Hong Kong. So, let's get started. So, Alastair, before we delve into the more recent trends, for the benefit of those less familiar with the Hong Kong's competition regime, can you please give us a brief overview of the regime? Sure. There are really two key aspects about the regime that you need to be aware of. The first is about the type of conduct that's covered under the rules. And essentially, there are three pillars. The first pillar covers anti-competitive agreements under the so-called first conduct rule. The second pillar governs uh, abuses of a substantial degree of market power under the second conduct rule. And the third governs anti-competitive mergers under the merger rule, although critically, the merger rule only applies to the telecommunications sector. And then the second aspect is the type of enforcement framework that the regime has, and it's a prosecutorial framework rather than an administrative one. And what I mean by that is that the competition authority, the competition commission, can't decide whether or not a particular conduct infringes the rules, but it must take the case and prosecute it in front of a judge at the competition tribunal, who is the ultimate decider on whether or not the rules have been infringed. And that obviously is different from a number of jurisdictions around the world, which, as I mentioned, are administrative in nature, which means that the competition authority itself is able to both investigate, but also decide on whether the rules are breached. Thanks, Alistair. That's very clear and helpful. So in terms of the actual enforcement, 
How active has authority been since the law came into force in December 2015? Did it take some time before enforcement really picked up? Yeah, I think it probably did. Not surprisingly, there was a there's in fact a period immediately after the the law came into force where the commission didn't immediately take cases to the tribunal. But fast forward to today, just over 6 years now of the law being in force and the the Competition Commission has commenced proceedings in nine cartel cases and one abuse case before the Competition Tribunal. And that's against a total of over 50 respondents, 40 corporates and 12 individuals. So there have also been a number of, uh, a small number of other cases which have been resolved by the Commission without needing to resort to taking the case to to the tribunal. So I think I would say that it's been relatively active. I think that it's picked up speed over time as as you might expect. And I think it's it's really only now that one might think that actually the, the, the authority and the regime is sort of reaching cruising altitude, so to speak. And sort of now I would have think that the output that we are now seeing on a sort of yearly basis is likely to be replicated going forward. Yeah, I think that's right, Alistair. I mean, one could say that the Commission has been slightly cautious in its initial approach to to enforcement of the ordinance. It has been careful in selecting and prioritizing cases that it has taken to the tribunal. And the aim of that has been to gradually build up a solid foundation of precedence on important issues, such as the, the concept of an undertaking, a single economic entity, and the efficiency defense. So it's clearly wanted to do that, and it has been successful in that endeavor with with a 100% win rate before the tribunal to date. I think it's fair to say that they will move on to more, to less cookie-cutter issues uh, going ahead. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, Laurent. And one has to remember, though, with a new regime, that there is effectively no precedent. And so, you know, even, as you say, really critical principles and concepts need to be established and therefore they need to be argued in front of the tribunal as to you know what amounts to price fixing what amounts to market sharing or as you mentioned you know what amounts to an undertaking or a single economic entity it's a, it's easy to forget those sorts of concepts which have existed and are, are pretty clear uh, say in other jurisdictions you know you're you're kind of back to square one with with a new law wow Very impressive to hear that the authority has a 100% success rate, which, as both of you have mentioned, may partly be contributed to the very careful selection of cases to go after. So, if we adopt a forward-looking approach, what do you see will be the key areas of focus for the authority to look after, both in terms of conduct and also in terms of the sectors that may be on top of their agenda? I don't think the focus is going to change dramatically from what it's been to date. And that's very much been a focus on cartels. In other words, price fixing, market sharing, bid rigging and the like. But having said that, as well as cartel enforcement, I think we'll see the Commission increasingly investigate other forms of anti-competitive conduct. In fact, the Commission has already investigated a small number of so-called effects cases in the last few years such as the ports and the online hotel booking cases. And in the medical gases case, the Commission has taken its first abuse case to the tribunal. 
And the other development we're beginning to see is in the use of different enforcement tools. So as well as taking cases to the tribunal, the Commission has started to use other tools such as infringement notices and commitments to address potentially problematic behaviour, but without the burden of needing to go to court. Yeah, and, and I think in terms of looking ahead, the, the Commission has actually given us some guidance in its enforcement priorities for the coming years. So in December 2021, uh, they enumerated three areas of focus for enforcement, one being anti-competitive behaviours affecting people's livelihoods, particularly low-income or grassroots groups. Uh, the second is cartels that take advantage of government or public funding. And then finally, the, the digital economy, which is high on the radar of pretty much every single antitrust enforcement out there. In addition, uh, one should also add that antitrust issues in relation to labor markets have also become something of a hot topic. Uh, we've seen the increased scrutiny by antitrust authorities on agreements that restrict the solicitation or movement of employees. This has particularly been the case in the US, but we have also seen some competition authorities in EU member states looking at this more closely. And the Commission in Hong Kong produced a, an advisory bulletin on labor-related issues in 2018, which has since remained an area of focus. So I'm just going to pick up on, on the reference to the digital economy that Laurent mentioned and we've certainly seen a bit of a, a change here in Hong Kong. Only a couple of years ago, I think it was made clear by the Commission uh, in one or two public comments that some of these really big international tech companies were unlikely to be investigated by the uh, Competition Commission, particularly in circumstances where perhaps their conduct was being looked at elsewhere. And I, it feels as though that that position has changed a little. And the reason I say that is, well, one, as Laurent mentioned, the digital economy is, has been sort of now singled out as an area of focus for the future. But we've also seen it in, in one or two of the, the cases that the Commission has taken. So I already mentioned the hotel online booking case, uh, and the Commission is also currently undertaking an investigation into online food delivery platforms. There's also been a, a rumour that um, there could be a market study into the digital economy as well. All of that to say that, as Ron mentioned, the digital economy is certainly under the regulatory spotlight in uh, a host of jurisdictions around the world. And I, I think Hong Kong is, is probably not going to be particularly different in that respect. It really sounds like the authorities globally now are taking uh, very similar approaches and have similar priorities these days. For example, we have also heard very frequently that uh, SMR, the Chinese antitrust regulator, also care a lot about sectors relating to people's livelihood, such as consumer goods and the pharmaceutical, and not to mention digital, where we've already witnessed very active enforcement in China since 2021. Coming back to Hong Kong, which is still a relatively young regime, Alistair and Lohan, could you let us know to what extent overseas jurisprudence play a role in the interpretation and enforcement of the uh, Hong Kong Competition Ordinance? I would say pretty significant. Certainly the first few judgments that came out of the tribunal, there was a a relatively heavy reliance on, on overseas precedent and in particular uh, reliance or reference back to 
European cases. So uh, I mentioned at the beginning that the, the sort of three pillars of the regime will be familiar to those who, who practice in other jurisdictions and particularly in Europe. And uh, I think a number of the concepts from a substantive perspective under the, the, the rules in Hong Kong are, are going to be interpreted with something of a, of, of a European lens. I think that makes sense. I mean, especially as we said, there, there's still not as big of a body of precedent here in Hong Kong as, as there is in the, in the EU. So it's only natural for uh, both the Commission and the Tribunal to look at the EU, but indeed also other jurisdictions for how concepts are interpreted. It'll be interesting to see whether some divergence can be observed over the coming years as, as the case law develops here, uh, in particular because of the difference in the approach to, to prosecuting competition cases where, as you said, Alistair, the, the Commission has to take its case to court, whereas the European Commission can act as judge, jury and executioner and only has to defend its decisions in front of the um, Court of Justice in Luxembourg. Yeah, let me give you a practical example of that, Laurent, or at least it, it might be a practical example, which is that the the standard of proof is, that has been decided upon by the tribunal in the, the, the first judgments is a criminal standard in relation to you know conduct violations under the rules, and that's clearly uh, different from the approach under European competition law. That's very interesting. Thanks, Alastair de Lahan. So we have talked a lot about conduct rules and investigations already. Let's change the topic a little bit and talk about merger control. As Alistair, you mentioned earlier, Hong Kong does not have an economy-wide merger control regime yet, but rather a telecom industry-specific merger control regime. Any more details on that and any prospect of the rules changing anytime soon? Lohan, would you like to get started this time? Yeah, I mean, as, as you said, and it's quite an unusual regime given its exclusive sector focus on telecoms. You know, practically how it works, it's either the acquirer or the target has to have a unified carrier license in Hong Kong for the merger control rules to apply. And in practice, it's, it's not the competition commission, but the communications authority that would lead on such cases that they have a memorandum of understanding with the competition commission. And looking forward, I think that uh, potential reform of the merger regime to make it an economy-wide regime has been a possibility really ever since the ordinance came into force. In fact, actually several years before, because there was a, a long debate as to what type of merger regime Hong Kong should have. And ultimately, the decision was made to limit it to telecoms, as had been the case before the competition regime came to force, because the measure regime predated it under the telecommunications ordinance, and to keep a watching brief and to consider in the future uh, whether or not changes should be made. At this point, there has been no concrete suggestion that changes are afoot, so we'll just have to, to wait and see if that changes in the years to come. Great. We have now covered all three pillars of the Hong Kong competition regime. Finally, Alistair and Lohant, could you each share with our listeners here practical tips that they should be thinking about when doing business in Hong Kong? Sure. I'd say don't underestimate the regime. And I say that because 
I think there's a risk that, of thinking that the regime doesn't need to be taken too seriously. There was a, a really big fanfare introducing the regime back in 2015. Uh, companies spent quite a lot of time looking inwards and deciding if, if changes needed to be made to their their activities to ensure compliance with the regime. And then there was something of a lull with relatively limited enforcement once the rules came into force. And as I mentioned, that the focus, at least initially, was on relatively small companies. But I think people need to remember that it's still relatively early in the, the lifetime of the regime. And also to remember that the sanctions for violations of the regime can be really very serious, including not only financial and other penalties on corporations, but also on individuals as well. And the Competition Commission has a very clear policy of prosecuting against individuals in all cases that it, that it takes to the tribunal and, and where it has the evidence to do so. Yeah, I think that's right. And given where we are now in, in the age of the regime, the Commission will look to flex its muscles and take on more cases to show what it can do, given its successful track record to date. So, yeah, I would just echo that and say that it's perhaps time to uh, dust off the, the compliance manuals. That's very nice advice. Thanks, Alistair and uh, Lahan. So, uh, it has been a great overview of the regulatory developments in Hong Kong and uh, extremely helpful insights about the potential regulatory priorities going forward. Thank you again, Alistair and Lahan, to be our guest today. Thank you. Thanks very much, Hazel. Thank you to our listeners as well for checking out this episode in our Asia Essential Antitrust series. If you'd like more information about the topics in this podcast, please email us using the links in the show description. We hope you will join with us again next time. Thank you and bye-bye.